The Torah you taught us, Beck, is essential wisdom for our time. When we spend our days glued to our phones or televisions, distressed by the minute-to-minute news out of Israel and Gaza, you remind us of something bigger than the crisis and certainly a truth for getting through it. As people across the world entrench themselves firmly on one side or the other, you remind us to see the other, and in so doing, ideally, to remember the humanity in between. Now, our visceral human impulse is not to do this. Even in the best of times, human beings struggle to see similarities as readily as we emphasize differences. We fail all the more so when we are grieving or otherwise in pain. And it's here that I want to locate us this morning in grief because it is obvious that so many of us are grieving collectively, even in ways that we might not recognize. We're a little less productive, somewhat more irritable perhaps, more reactive, more scared, and more confused all the time. We are very far away right now from the best versions of ourselves. And unless we name that fact repeatedly, we could just as easily forget it. Since this kind of mourning or grief is abstract and generally unfamiliar to us. The Torah reading this week is itself centered on grief, right from its very first verses. Vatamot Sarah Bekiryat Arba, and Sarah died in Kiryat Arba. He Hebron Be'eretz Kanaan, that is, Hebron in the land of Canaan. Vayavo Abraham Lispod Lisarah, Veliv Kota. And Abraham came to mourn Sarah and weep for her. After decades of traveling from their birthplace to Canaan, to Egypt and back again, after founding monotheism together, and after founding a family, Abraham has to confront the loss of his wife. And just when you might expect the Torah to depict, depict his pain poetically, the next verse reads, Vayakom Avraham me'al meto, and Abraham rose from beside his dead. The Torah is always laconic, sparing in details. But here, the lack of pathos and characterization is striking. Abraham mourns his wife, his beloved, the woman with whom he had been called by God to fulfill his destiny with almost nothing to say about the process. He immediately rises, vayakom, and gets to work. Abraham's behavior is contrary to everything we know about meaningfully passing through grief. Though surely some of us who mourn may want to get back to work to take our mind off the pain, rising immediately or reacting, doing those things rarely achieves what we think it will. It's for this reason that our tradition gives us the ritual cycle of Shiva, Shloshim, and Shana to force us to sit in our pain as we determine how to live in a new reality. This past week, we marked Shloshim since October 7th, a 30-day period of mourning the dead. Ostensibly, at this point in our collective grieving, we should be healing. Shloshim advances us closer toward understanding and wholeness. Usually, that is. But who among us can claim that we are feeling soothed right now? Who can say that the passage of time has brought us a sense of peace or wholeness? 
with further escalation of war, with 240 hostages still in Gaza, with over 10,000 Palestinian casualties, with parents from Israel sending their children off to an uncertain war, with new details coming out each day about Hamas's gruesome attack on innocent people. Israelis and Palestinians have had no chance to heal, and neither have we. It is excruciating to sit in grief and fear, and many of us want to be healing more quickly than we humanly can. We feel ready to do something and to direct our rage or sorrow towards some object. And as we wonder what we can do, given our general sense of powerlessness, we must first admit that we are still adrift in a sea of loss. Abraham mourned for Sarah and wept for her. Our sages point out that this is not the normal cadence of grief. Typically, the first thing we do is weep, and then we enter a long period of mourning. But Abraham has it in reverse, and he seems unwilling to do that. And possibly for this reason, he spends the rest of his life in mourning. Perhaps as well we learn from this that whether we're mourning a loved one or mourning masses of people far away from here whom we do not know, if we're going to move beyond our grief, we have no choice but to move through it, allowing ourselves to feel fully. But once we've established that, learning from Abraham what not to do, there may be further wisdom in what Abraham actually does when he rises immediately insisting on action. Abraham moves first to purchase a plot of land in which to bury Sarah. The Hittites want to give it to him for free, but he insists on paying for it. Surely that is the part that many rabbis will focus on this Shabbat, yet another text that demonstrates our people's ancient relationship with the land of Israel. Until this point, Abraham did not actually possess any land at all. And instead of looking at the past or raging against the present, Abraham shifts his gaze toward the future, seeking to enact the promise that God made with him to inhabit that land. This grief response is also a normal one, and probably one from which we can learn. That in our grieving, we can look toward a better future than the one we currently inhabit. We can invent it in our minds, and once we have it in mind, we can measure our behaviors against the future, or that future, to see if our behaviors get us closer to it or further away. Beck, you shared a commentary that one reason why Abraham didn't want Isaac, didn't want Isaac to marry a Canaanite woman was because he wanted no doubt about the provenance of his descendants' land ownership. Our sages understood that that goal was essential for him. Ger v'toshav anochi imachem, he says to the Hittites. I am a resident alien among you. The 12th century commentator Radak reads Abraham to be acknowledging the emotional state of his neighbors in this moment, as if Abraham is saying, in Radak's words, I describe my, myself first and foremost as a stranger, seeing that I have come from another country. Yet I also describe myself as a resident, seeing that I have lived among you for many years and will continue to remain among you in peace. 
This hopeful rabbinic reading imagines that as Abraham secured his legacy and his land, he sought to ensure a future of coexistence for himself and for his family. Not only did he visualize his future, he took steps to enact it in ways that were ethical and understanding. Abraham, we must remember, is a shared mythic ancestor of both Israelis and Palestinians, both of whom came to that land at some point as resident strangers. And it is hopeful that his story speaks to the value of living beside one another. And here, Beck, is where the lesson you taught us may be even more deeply embedded in the Torah narrative than we might have thought. Maybe Abraham did understand just how similar he was to the people with whom he shared that land. Maybe Abraham had some inkling that living together in Canaan required precisely this coexistence. And presumably his efforts were in fact to be both fully himself and fully at peace with his neighbors. Once Abraham achieves this goal, he does one last thing in this Parsha, which you explored in great detail. Again, choosing not to look back, but to look ahead at some more hopeful future. Abraham sends his servant to his birthplace to find a wife for Isaac. Now, whether or not he was justified, or it was justified for Abraham to seek a daughter-in-law from among his own tribe, the key point here is that he moves from merely sacrificing his son in last week's Parsha to course correcting and seeking a secure future for his descendants through Isaac in this week's Parsha. We don't read here of the Abraham that smashes idols. We don't see him in blind fidelity to a God who asks that he do the unthinkable. We see instead a man who understands that his descendants must thrive. And by acting from that place, Abraham's efforts yield the first mention of ahava, of love, between partners in the Torah, in the marriage between Isaac and Rebekah. By measuring his actions against the vision for the future that he actually wants, Abraham is able to redeem himself. Even if we never read that he successfully passes through his grief, he is able to channel it in service of creating a better future. As we continue to face the enormous loss that our people has endured since October 7th, and as we contend with the various moral questions before us, we might do a better job than he did at acknowledging our own grief. We would be well served by giving ourselves the space to feel our pain so that we can actually move through it, cutting ourselves some slack and allowing ourselves to sit and to do very little. But, and, following Abraham's lead, if we are in need of some action right now, if we refuse to let ourselves merely sit and grieve, insisting that something must be done, let our actions also be motivated by a vision for a future in which we actually want to live, a future that is far better than what we know today, a world in which Israelis and Palestinians can live beside one another, a world in which young people are able to do better than their parents, seeking out similarities more readily than insisting on difference. If indeed we need to act or advocate, may our actions and our words be in the service of that future. Shabbat Shalom.